Matthew 16, our text for this morning is verses 21 through 23. Why don't we begin reading at verse 13? So we'll read last week's passage. We will make some reference to it, and then we'll read 21 through 23. So Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, reading through verse 23. Once again, the word of the Lord, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bitter must come before the sweet. And that is what makes the sweet sweeter. In the second volume of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian's family, the ones who refused to go with him in volume one to flee the city of destruction and to seek the eternal celestial city, have become taken with the hope of that celestial city. So they have come around to the faith that Christian had, and they have decided to set out uh, to seek that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Christiana, Christian's wife, and their four children set out. There's a woman in the city of destruction who wants to stop them before they even get started, right as they're starting out on their journey. She is fearful. In fact, uh, she is gripped by fear. Her name is Mrs. Timorous, which means fearful, And she makes an overture to them to say, you ought not go on this journey because danger and difficulty awaits you. Here's the the Pastor Dan modernized version of this. I smoothed out the language so it's better for you to, to hear while I read it. She says something like this, oh, the madness 
of you and your husband. This is Mrs. Timorous speaking to Christiana. You ruin yourselves by running into such trouble. I'm sure you heard all that your husband had to endure from the first step to the last. All of those who quit the journey and did not continue with him are the wise ones. He had to face lions, Apollyon, the valley of the shadow of death, and so much else. If a man had such difficulty, what can a woman like you do? And what of your children? How can you bring them along? Even if you are fine ruining your life, why ruin theirs and bring such trouble upon them? And Christiana responds, saying something like this, Stop tempting me, neighbor. I have seen the pearl of great price, and I would be the world's worst fool if I did not run with all that I have to lay hold of it. And since I have seen the truth, the troubles which await me on this journey will not discourage me, but they will confirm for me that my journey is not in vain and that I am on the right path. For the bitter must come before the sweet, and that is what makes the sweet all the sweeter. When we are faced with difficulty, with trial, with temptation, when we face these things on the way of obedience, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, they confirm for us that we are on the right path. They confirm for us that our journey is not in vain. They teach us about our suffering Savior, the suffering Messiah. They shape us and they mold us to make us ready for an eternity with him. We learn from Christ. He teaches us in this passage and all throughout his life and all throughout his word that the bitter must come before the sweet. If we are to enjoy salvation, that is what he had to do, to endure the bitter before the sweet. And the Bible calls us to set our eyes on him. Look at the path that he walked and in confidence of what he has already done to follow him in the way of obedience and being willing to suffer all that might come our way. So a couple of ideas today. First, this, a suffering Messiah. Secondly, a suffering church. And then suffering with minds set on God. A suffering Messiah, a suffering church, and suffering with minds set on God. From this time, our passage begins in verse 21. From this time. So something has changed. And what has changed? Well, Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. He has received this great blessing from Jesus. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This has been revealed to you by my father. I will build my church on, this, uh, on what you have just done. You are the first rock that is laid upon the cornerstone as we considered there last week. So this great blessing. Now from this time, something changes. And what is it? Jesus now reveals to the disciples more clearly what he must do. And what he reveals to them specifically is that the Messiah is the suffering servant. So he's bringing these two Old Testament pictures together. The anointed one, the son of David, the one who is to reign, the one who is to have a, a rule and a kingdom which will have no end, is also one and the same with the suffering servant. So 
two pictures woven together. And we have the gospel ingrained in us. Uh, it, it is so ingrained in us. The story of Christ through which we hope and, and, and by which we, we look to our eternity. And so it's hard for us to grasp how difficult the weaving of these two pictures would have been for the followers of Jesus at that time. You can imagine that there was probably relief after Peter makes his confession. The disciples kind of all join with Peter in that confession. He's the spokesman for the disciples. And so Jesus says, yes, that is correct. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. You can imagine there's relief, but then immediately there's a host of new problems now that Jesus introduces to them. And they would have struggled to to accept these things. It would have been a story that would have seemed to to be nonsensical. Um, This was the the coming king who was to reign. This was the the coming one who was to to be welcomed like David was welcomed after he he slayed Goliath. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David is our hero. He is our king. You know, it would be a bit like a fairy tale, and you've got the damsel in distress locked away in the tower and prince charming comes riding on his horse and he slays the dragon and he goes up to uh, to uh, you know thrust open the door of the dungeon to save the princess in distress and she doesn't go with him it's kind of like that everything is set up for that that happy that joyous ending here's the messiah the one who is for whom we have waited and jesus says no i must go to Jerusalem, which is the city of the great king. I must go to my city and be rejected by the leaders of that city, scribes, the elders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, all of those of the religious establishment. So this kind of a story is unthinkable for many of them, but this is weaving together these two pictures. So we read that, that Peter rebukes Jesus. We can imagine that it's, in that sense, it's sort of understandable that Peter would have had this reaction. And again, we see that position of spokesman for the disciples, don't we? That probably most or even all of the disciples wanted to do this to Jesus. Peter, as the leader, is the one who, who speaks up. And that is why we are so often focused on, on Peter throughout, throughout the Gospels. There's a picture painted for us in verse 22. Peter takes Jesus aside. Now, what's going on there? It seems like Matthew has a clear, very clear recollection of what is, what is happening here. It feels a little bit like a parent taking a child aside to correct him or her without embarrassing the child. You know, they sort of take them away. You see them doing something with their, their friends that you don't like, and you want to teach them something about that. So you take them aside and sort of look at them and explain to them what, what they are not to do. Or maybe a, a teacher taking a student aside or a, a boss taking an employee aside. The point is that Peter has assumed a new position, a new posture, as he has done this. He is the one who has just said in the the previous passage, you are the Christ, recognizing his lordship, recognizing that Jesus is the one whom he is to follow, that he has submitted to him, and now he hears this new revelation, this new teaching, and he rejects it, and so he takes Jesus aside, and he rebukes him. Now, that's a very interesting word as well in the Gospels. A few times in Matthew, but especially in Luke, 
Jesus rebukes sin. He rebukes demons. He rebukes the wind. Whenever Jesus kind of blasts back the curse of the sin, the curse of sin and death, this is the verb that is used particularly in Luke. And and the point there is that Jesus recognizes something in the curse, something that goes against the order of God's original creation, and he pushes it back. He recognizes the disorder, and he blasts it away. And that's what Peter is doing, or trying to do here. He's rebuking Jesus, trying to speak back what Jesus has just said. I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must die. The third day I will be raised. But you can imagine by the time Jesus gets to declaring that he will be raised, already they're so disoriented by this prophecy, this word, that they're not even connecting the dots on the resurrection. And certainly they were not at this point. They did not see clearly the path that that Jesus was to walk. And so Peter says, basically, you've got it wrong. Jesus, this is wrong. May this never happen to you. God forbid that this should happen. You boil it down, and essentially it's this. The Messiah will not suffer. The Messiah is not a sufferer. The Messiah is a triumphant king. He's the anointed one. He's the son of David, the new and greater David. That's where Peter's biblical theology was at that point. Not beyond our understanding to see why he would have thought that. But that's what he does. He rejects the word just spoken to him by God the Son. Well, then Jesus says, this is what he, well, initially is what he says he must do there in verse 21. He began to share with them that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, the word here behind that phrase, he must go, it is necessary to go is appealing to or it's pulling on the the imagery of the Father's will, the eternal plan of God to redeem his people. Why must Jesus go? Because the nature of his mission demands that he suffer in this way. So now we're talking about the kind of king Jesus is. What kind of king is he? Peter's picture of the the reigning Messiah was off because he wasn't thinking in a grand enough way. The kingdom that Jesus has come to establish is a kingdom of righteousness, not merely earthly power. It's a kingdom of righteousness. His throne is a throne of reconciliation. His dominion is in the realm of redemption, righteousness, reconciliation, redemption. All of these in an eternal way, bringing us to blessedness with God. The nature of the Messiah's work is is spoken of there in Isaiah 53 that we read today. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So you have this, this going down into the depths, but then an emergence into something greater that would not have been otherwise. See, that's the story of Christ. The depths to which he has to go in order to bring about this greater blessing, this greater kingdom. The righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. So Jesus says he he must do this. And this is the foundation of biblical religion for us. This is Christianity. 
This is what it's all about. Because Jesus goes to the cross, he suffers. Because if he does not suffer, the curse is not lifted. The price of sin is not paid. The holiness of God, the wrath of God cannot be wiped away unless there's an offering of righteousness. So there you have in the New Testament the, the, the weaving together of the blood of Christ and the cleansing water of Christ. Unless his blood is shed, the cleansing water cannot flow. Unless he sheds his blood and unless we are washed in that blood, the water of cleansing cannot be given to us. Jesus focuses here to say that the, the necessity of his work is the necessity which animates our very salvation. And so you can understand why he reacts in such a way against Peter. Because what Peter is saying, no, you don't have to do this. You're not going to do this. This isn't going to happen to you. You've got it wrong. You can understand why Jesus would react with such energy to such a thing that Peter would say. From all of this, what do we see? We see that Jesus puts the cross at the center of his work. Suffering is at the center of his work, and thus we must do the same, brothers and sisters. The cross of Jesus Christ must be central to how we think about the Christian faith. And it's not just because we remain focused always and only on the cross. It's because without the cross... There's no resurrection, no resurrection, there is no ascension, no ascension, there is no heavenly life and blessing, all those things that we we have sung about already today. That's why the focus is there on the cross, because unless he goes down into those depths, the magnitude of those blessings will not flow. The church has tried, particularly the last few centuries, the the church has strayed from this centrality. And the, the difficulty has been trying to find a way to speak about Christ's death while we maintain that it was not of the Father's will. So many people say it could not have been the Father's will that the Son would go to the cross to pay our price. So many people have come to say just that. But what we see in Isaiah, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. What did we see Jesus say? It is necessary that he must go. J.C. Ryle says this, if we are wrong here on this simple fact that unless Christ sheds his blood, we have no salvation. If we are wrong here, we are ruined forever. There may be error on other points, and that is only a skin disease, but error about Christ's death is a disease at the heart. Here, let us take our stand. He goes on to say there may be various disagreements, about church government and polity, all important issues, but he says here, The true church must take her stand. The sum of all of our hopes must be that Christ has died for us. Give up that doctrine and you have no hope at all, he says. Peter will come around to see this, won't he? This very thing that Peter rejects will become the sum, the substance, the core of what he will proclaim. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, You were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. What is he saying? 
He's recognizing that unless you understand the necessity, the need, the centrality of the shed blood of Christ, you have not grasped what our faith is all about. Because it's a kingdom of righteousness, a throne of reconciliation, a dominion of redemption. All of that for an eternity with God. Bitter, the bitter must come before the sweet. It must come before the sweet for the Messiah, and that's the point. And that makes the sweet all the sweeter. So a suffering Messiah, Jesus brings these two pictures together for us and for his disciples. But then there's a, there's a suffering church that those who follow after him, and we'll get into that more in the coming weeks with the call of discipleship that Jesus uh, teaches us there in the in subsequent verses. But here we see a, a suffering church. Peter takes Jesus aside and Jesus responds with a, a ferocity and, uh, and, and a response that surprises us. What's going on there in, in uh, verse 22 and, and 23? He turns, Jesus turns and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Jesus is recognizing the same diabolical source that tempted him in the wilderness. So, Scholars have various ways of dealing with this. Good biblical scholars say, you know, perhaps Jesus is responding directly to Satan this moment, that Satan is, is somehow present. At the very least, he is certainly influencing what Peter is saying here. Peter has succumbed to a temptation, to unbelief, because Jesus has declared it as the Lord. He's revealed what he must, the path he must walk. And Peter says, no, no, you're not going to do this. So, so he's responded in unbelief. So he has succumbed to that temptation. We'll say it's probably one of those two, whether or not Satan is sort of present there in some way, or Peter has become like Satan in uh, saying these things to Jesus. And there's a likeness to what he says to the temptation in the wilderness, isn't there? He's saying to Jesus, you do not have to suffer to experience your glory. And so you have the very same thing that Satan has said to Jesus in the third temptation in chapter 4 where he has taken up to show him the kingdoms of the earth. These kingdoms I will give you, Satan said, if you fall down and worship me. Worship me now. Don't suffer. Reject your path of suffering. Worship me. I will give you these the glory of these kingdoms. But that is a, a horribly truncated glory, isn't it? That gets us back to when Jesus says he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer and he must die and he must be raised again in order to bring sinners out of their estate of sin and misery and into an estate of salvation. What Satan offers Jesus, though it's more than we would ever be offered for sure, is a horribly truncated glory. Can you imagine the, the despair of reigning over this present age with no hope of redemption from it? That this is how it goes on forever and ever. The terrible suffering of this world. All of the losses that this life brings to us. All of the pain. All of the trial. Without a hope of getting out of that cycle, a horribly truncated glory that would have been. See, Christ's mission is, is greater. His work will, will bring a greater glory. 
It says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Only a crucified Jesus can inherit this glory. And so Jesus says, you have become, to Peter, you have become a stumbling block to me. The picture here is you're walking down a path and there's a a fork in the path. And right where the fork is, there's a big rock. And it's big enough so that you can trip over. So Peter has now come out from behind Jesus and his sort of metaphorical position is in front of Jesus, a stumbling block that is now in front of him, not behind him. And Jesus, while rebuking the the evil that is there in Peter's heart and succumbing to this temptation, also says to Peter, you need to resume your rightful place behind me. You have just said that I am worthy to be followed, but now you've gone in front of me and you've become a stumbling block. You are in my way. You are blocking me from the path that I need to walk. So the suffering Messiah raises for us a consideration, doesn't it, beloved? Could we who believe in a suffering Messiah expect that we would not suffer? Could we who say that we will follow this Savior, could we expect that we will not suffer? Because he's shown us what it it is like to go through this life in a righteous way. To go through this life by faith to go through this sin-cursed world looking to something that is yet to come. And in suffering, we become like Christ. We are shaped and made ready for eternity. And so Peter, again, you go to 1 Peter, and it's so amazing sometimes when you, when you read Peter in the Gospels and then you read First and Second Peter to see the way that he came around on all of these things. So he says in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised. At the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Because think about it, Peter has said to Jesus essentially, Jesus, this is a strange teaching, the suffering Messiah. And then he says in his epistle decades later, do not be surprised when you suffer as though it were strange. He said, it's it's normal for Christians to suffer because you cannot walk through this sin-cursed world without experiencing challenge, trial, temptation, losses, and crosses. John Newton says that prosperity causes us to rise in the world, but affliction causes us to rise above the world. C.S. Lewis, it's the, the megaphone of God. He speaks to us loudly in our sufferings. And so do we fight this temptation the way Jesus did? If we are the people of the Messiah, Christians who follow Christ, do we fight this temptation the way Jesus does? The ferocity with which he responds to Peter and how he he fights down that temptation. Because we are tempted to believe, aren't we, that we will not suffer in this life. That God is obligated to give us blessings. We are tempted in the way when we, when we talk, when we speak with other Christians about spiritual things, and maybe they're at a point in their life where it could be a, a great trial that is about to come upon them, or relief from that trial, maybe the one way or the other. And we're tempted to say, well, I'm sure that the result of this test will be that everything's fine. I'm sure that a week from now, you will see that all of this has sort of gone away. We're tempted to reason that way. 
God is in control. He loves us. He's good. And so our fleshly instinct is that we will not suffer. But we know that we will. And God's word says that we will. And so do we fight this temptation the way that Jesus fights this temptation down? Just as the Savior could not save without suffering, so we cannot expect to walk through this world seeking the eternal city without myriad stumbling blocks, temptations, challenges that we will meet along the way. Count it all joy, James says, when you encounter trials of various kinds. So three points of comfort from this passage. The first is Peter. We read, beginning in verse 13, to show in close proximity, the blessing that Peter receives and this rebuke that Peter receives from Jesus. Peter's blunder here is actually a great comfort to us. One of the things that we talked about last week is that the highs and lows of Peter in the gospel picture for us the typical Christian life. That The typical Christian life is characterized by great triumphs of faith and great blunders and stumblings into sin. So J.C. Ryle says that these things are meant to teach us that we must neither regard saved man as perfect because they are saved, nor yet suppose they have no grace because their grace is weak and small. It keeps us in the middle. The high highs of the spiritual life are not in order to teach us that, wow, we are so great. We are such wonderful believers. And the stumblings that we experience in life is not to make us think that we are destitute of God's grace and beyond his ability to save. Peter's life is not one of pompous papacy. It is recurring repentance. That's the picture of Peter's life. Recurring repentance, coming unto the Lord. And the same is true for all of us. Peter gives us a great comfort here because as he has received this great blessing, blessed are you, Simon. You're Peter on this rock, I will build my church. Receive this great blessing. And here we are reminded the futility of the human heart. So there you go once again to 1 Peter, and he says at the end of that epistle, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, Peter knew what it was like to be restored after great blunders, after great stumblings. And so he pictures for us the Christian life as a comfort for us. Also, Jesus' promise. You are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. Who's building the church? You? Me? Some celebrity pastor? Someone who has 100,000 Uploads of his sermon or downloads of his sermon every week. Christ builds his church. And he needs no human being to make it happen. And that's a comfort for us when we think about celebrities falling, celebrity Christians falling into sin. It's a comfort for us each and every day that he is the one who is building his church. The infallible pilot. The one steering the ship, as John Newton called him. And then the, the, the Savior who suffered and who reigns to remember that Jesus is in heaven having already suffered. Having already suffered. And so he assures us of our place there as well. But how do you begin to follow Jesus on this way? Well, you need to be absolutely convinced of the infallible word of God. 
There's a litany that's sometimes used in the church as the minister reads the passage. He'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and the people will respond by saying, and we believe it is true. You have to be absolutely convinced that God's word is authoritative in your life, and you need to be submitted to it. You need to be submitted not only to the word of God, but to the lordship of Christ. Peter here pictures for us what that is not like. Jesus has spoken. And so we must say, yes, Lord, I will do it. In the end of the first book, the first installment in the Once and Future King, Sir Ector, for the first time, sees this character who up to this point has been called the Wart. And for the first moment, he sees him as King Arthur. And he has been his guardian up to this point. But now seeing him with fresh eyes, he falls down to his knees for he realizes he has raised the next king of England. He falls down on his knees and he will not get up. And the question is, as we look upon Christ with the eyes of faith, is that our posture as well? We fall down to our knees and we will not get up because he is our Lord and our King. So you need to be absolutely Uh, submissive to the Word of God, absolutely submissive to the Lordship of Christ, and you need to grow in an eternal perspective. The time is short. As I said before, my college football coach always said, you live two days. Everyone lives two days. You have this day, you have that day. You have to live this day in light of that day. First John says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions, it's not from the Father, it's from the world, and the world is passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you have the courage to live in light of forever? You don't have it within yourself, but are you going to the Lord asking for the courage to live in light of forever? Do you have the faith to give yourself to the one who suffered for you and calls you to suffer for him in the way of obedience? By God's grace, may that be said of each of us. Amen. Let's pray.